Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Genesis 15. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a servant born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. The word of the Lord. We'll read together our psalm by whole verse, Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. The Lord even the most mighty God has spoken and called the world from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Out of Zion, perfect in her beauty, has God shown forth in glory. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. 
There shall go before him a consuming fire, and a mighty tempest shall be stirred up round about him. He shall call to the heavens above and to the earth beneath, that he may judge his people. Gather my faithful together unto me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament lesson is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. A word from Paul to the Thessalonians. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now may god and father our now may our god and father himself and our lord jesus direct our way to you and may the lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you that he may establish your hearts as blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 21, verses 25 through 33. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. This is Jesus speaking. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to draw place, straighten up, and raise your heads, because your redemption is coming near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. If you brought a Bible with you today, open it up to Genesis chapter 15, either in paper or on an app. If you didn't bring a Bible today and you want to follow along with one, there are blue Bibles like this on the back table. You're welcome to grab one. And if you don't own a Bible and you want one, then one of those blue Bibles is yours to keep as our gift to you. In Genesis chapter 15, we see 
a really weird ritual happening. And it can be jarring to think about. And if you don't know what's going on, it doesn't make any sense at all. So, to jump back a couple chapters, in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, you are going to go from your country and your tribe and your family to the land that I will show you, and I am going to make your name great. And then, Abram, after that, Abram has uh, gone to Egypt, lied to Pharaoh, um, caused his wife to sin. Uh, he fought against some warring kings who captured his nephew. He had bread and wine with this really strange king of righteousness from the land of peace. And then he made a really good deal with these warring kings to let them keep all their riches, but he would just take his family back. So a lot has been going on in Abram's walk with God on this journey to the land that God was going to show him. So verse 1 starts with, after these things, which is basically everything I just said since we first met Abram. After these events had happened, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. He starts out the way that he often starts out with people. God starts out by saying, do not fear. Did you know that some version of that, do not fear or fear not or do not be afraid, is so common in the Bible that it actually happens 365 times? So there's one for every day of the year. God constantly reminding his people when he comes to them with his awesome power and they are just small, frail people in the midst of a scary world. His constant message to his people is do not fear. So he starts out, do not fear, because God is basically reminding Abram who he is. I am God. I am the Lord your God. He's coming back to remind Abram of who he is and to restate the promise that he gave him. Now, the next three chapters that we have, chapters 15, 16, and 17, they kind of function as one big unit. But in each one of them, you can see a different aspect of, of God's faithfulness. You can see a different aspect of, of our response to that faithfulness. And, and I actually, you can see a different aspect in each one of these chapters of, of God's promise as it's kind of played out in this Advent time, in this waiting time, and how that promise is eventually completed in the person of Jesus. So God has already told Abram twice that his house, that is his, his offspring, his lineage, would be the recipients of God's favor and great blessing. He said, I will make of you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he says, to your offspring, I give this land. But Abram's still not convinced. God has said he was going to give him offspring. He doesn't have any yet. And Abraham has already said, I, I don't have anyone to pass my, my, my fame, my, my fortune, my family name. I don't have anybody to pass this on to. The closest thing to my heir is this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. What are we going to do? But God keeps saying, to your offspring. I will give this land. But Abram's not convinced. He's still questioning. It's like, it's like when you look at him, you can see a picture of, of any one of us because he's going back and forth between faith and doubt. First, we see that God trusted Abram, or that Abram trusted God, and God credited to him his righteousness. But then we still see him questioning. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. And, God, and then God said, I am the Lord. He said to him, I am the Lord, as if that was enough of an answer. 
I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And that's the first time that God has said to Abram, hey, the land that I said I was going to show you, you're actually standing on it now. We're here. Two things that God says to his people over and over again. First, he says, do not fear. And the second is, he says, I am the Lord. As if that was enough to answer our questions. The same thing that God will later say to Abram's son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob over and over and over again. Do not fear, I am the Lord. But still, Abram wonders. He, he questions how this is going to work. Yes, I, I, I know that you're God, but what are we doing here? Like, I'm old, my wife is old, we don't have kids. Eliezer from Damascus is going to get all my stuff. How can I be sure, God, that you're, gonna, that you're actually going to follow through on your promises. And after he says this, God does something that if you don't know what's going on, seems nuts. Abram asked God a question. How are we going to, how, what's, how do I know that you're going to keep your promises? Let me explain what God's doing here. Abram is struggling to trust God. Abram is wondering how he can be sure of God. Because, yes, so far God seems to be pretty powerful. He comes to him in visions and audible voices. But as a nomadic tribesman, Abram would have already met a lot of people with a lot of different household gods, regional gods, tribal gods. And for most of the tribes and nations at this time, the, the myths of their idols and their gods would show that while, while God might be powerful, he's nothing that you would call good. The gods of that time didn't necessarily keep their word. So, what if, what if God, what if this Yahweh, this God who had appeared to Abraham, what if he's like them? What if he's capricious? What if he says one thing one day and the next he completely changes his mind, like, like the, the legends of Baal or, or Moloch or Tiamat, or all of them? What if this God is just like those gods? Unpredictable, temperamental untrustworthy, sometimes actually cruel. So you can imagine, it's easy for me to imagine Abram going, yeah, I, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief, because what if you just end up being like the rest of these guys that I've heard about my whole life? And God gives him a very strange sign. And it's a, it's a perfect sign. It's a, actually a sign of God's grace to Abram that he speaks to him in a language that he can understand. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. But the fact that he would even go out of his way to convince Abram is such a picture of God's grace to us. Because if, if like Abram, if you've lived your entire life around people who don't keep their word, especially people like a god or an idol, people in a position of authority or power who don't keep their word, trust is a really hard thing. It is really hard to take someone at their word. So it's easy for me when I'm reading this passage to see Abram doubting God, and it's really easy for me, and I did it this week, to read it and just be like, come on, dude. Like, this, this is God. Like, haven't you read the rest of the Bible? This is God. He's really good all the time. All the time he's good. What's up? But when I stop and think about who Abram was at this moment in time in his life, I understand why he might have some unbelief mixed in with that belief. So what does God do to show him that he's trustworthy? Well, he gives him a, a sign 
or an indicator that he's trustworthy. This is not at all uncommon. There's a lot of different societies that will have signs or indicators to show that they're trustworthy. A handshake. Why do we, why do we shake hands with each other? Well, 90% of the world is right-handed. And so when I extend my hand to you, I'm showing you two things. One, I don't have a weapon in it. And two, my hand is as far away as it can be from the sword that's on my hilt. So it's very hard for me to defend myself. So I'm extending to you, I'm showing you that I am trustworthy. When we fold our hands in prayer, do you know where this came from? We probably, they, not 100% sure, but we fold our hands in prayer because there used to be an ancient tradition where the subject would go up to the king, fold his hands, and put them into the open hands of the king. Again, showing that he was completely defenseless. Couldn't make a fist, couldn't go for his weapons, that he was putting his hands in the life of the king. We show people that we are trustworthy with these gestures. So what does God do? He gives him a culturally significant sign. And now here we get to talk about a really good church word, a covenant. Archaeologists and historians have found evidence at this time and this place in the ancient Near East that there was a common thing called a covenant. It sounds like a good church word, and it is, because the Bible has used it to illustrate God's relationship to his people. But this was also a very secular thing. It was a common thing at the time between two different parties, like, like two kingdoms or two tribes. And it, and it wasn't just a peace treaty. It was actually more than that. It was the promise of future behavior based on past events. Think of it that way. And the Bible actually follows a pattern of these kind of covenants. It's really helpful if you read the Bible as a series of God making different covenants with his people. There are six of them across the Bible. Well, okay, five if you don't count Adam, because the covenant with Adam wasn't really stated, it was kind of implied. But there are, there are major covenants across the Bible. There's a covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, which we did a few weeks ago. There's this covenant with Abraham, another one with Moses, another one with David, and then something called the New Covenant through Jesus. But here, this is the big one. This, this Abrahamic covenant, it actually plays out over three chapters. We saw it start in chapter 12 a few weeks ago. We see it here today in chapter 15, and it actually ends in chapter 17. God promises Abraham that he is going to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. God promises Abraham that he's going to give him land, and he promises Abraham that one of his descendants will bless the entire world. So the kind of covenant that's in view here is, is what would be called a, a great king, lesser king covenant, or it's actually a you want to get technical? It's a suzerain-vassal treaty, which is a lot of fun words to say. So here's what would happen. The greater king, the big boss, comes to the lesser king and says this. I'm a great king. He starts out with a prologue. I'm a great king. I've done this, 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 and this for you. And I'm proposing that in the future, you do this, 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 and this, and that for me. And there are rewards for you if you follow this. And there are punishments for you if you don't follow it. So like blessings and curses for not following this covenant. And then what they would do is they would take two identical tablets of stone. They would carve that covenant into the stone. This reminds you of Moses coming down the mountain with two tablets of stone. That's why. They would carve their name into each of them. They would basically sign their name in stone, these two kings. 
And they had two tablets because they had a copy of it. So that way, neither side could mess with the covenant, write in some other things. Oh, and you also need to send me one sheep every month because the other one had a copy of it. And then each king would take that copy of the covenant back to their village, back to their capital city. They would put it in the temple of their god for safekeeping. Suzerain vassal treaties. It's really fun to read about. But then they would have, as part of the covenant signing ceremony, as they were getting ready to chisel their name into these stones, they would perform a a ritual to show their level of commitment to this covenant. And the ceremony would have started a lot like this in verse 7. Abram said, Lord God, how do I know that I will possess it, the the land that God just gave him? God said this, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And so Abram brought these to him, he cut them in half, and he laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham shooed them away. Now, if I said to someone from a different time and place than than right here and right now, um, I would like you to bring me, let's see, I'd like you to bring me a, a white ball about the size of my fist and a straight wooden stick about the size and diameter of a table leg. Uh, I'd like you to bring me some left-handed, leather, oversized mittens and four white pillows. And I want you to arrange these four white pillows in a field in the shape of a, I don't know, it's called a diamond. And then I want you to go get nine guys and go get nine other guys. If I said that to somebody who's not familiar with this cultural context, they would look at me like they had no idea what I was talking about. But to somebody who is from this cultural context, you might start to pick up that I'm describing the fact that I want to start a baseball game. So to Abram, Abram would have been very familiar with exactly what God was asking him. And the reason that we know that is because all God said was, bring me a cow, bring me a goat, bring me a heifer, bring me a turtle dove and a pigeon. And as soon as Abram got them there, he, without being told what to do, he killed these animals, cut them in half, and set them opposite each other. He cut the dead carcasses in two. He basically, if you think about it, he created an aisle. Cow, goat, you. Cut them in half, spread them out, making an aisle. Because what God was describing here was the the culmination of this greater king, lesser king covenant, this suzerain vassal treaty. And there's, there's independent archaeological evidence of this. This is not just Bible people making this stuff up. The greater king and the lesser king, after they had hammered out this treaty, after they had said, we are going to do this and there will be blessings and there will be curses, they would have this ritual. Both the kings would walk through this aisle of split into dead animals. They would walk down the aisle reciting the terms of this covenant. And what they were saying is, if I fail to live up to my end of this bargain, May this happen to me. May I be destroyed and torn apart like these animals were. It was a solemn moment, and it showed the level of commitment that these kings had to the covenant that they were cutting. And so God states very clearly his end of the bargain. In verse 13, he says, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, 
You shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites. That's the people who were currently living in that land. The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. God was promising what was going to happen. He wasn't predicting what was going to happen. He was giving Abraham, he was giving Abraham a steadfast assurance of what was going to happen. But so often, if you, if you listen to the, the timing of that, so often God's promises don't come true in, in the, the way that we'd like God's timing to work out. I mean, God had promised Abraham his presence. He had promised him a people. He had promised him, um, he had promised him a presence, a people, a place, and a purpose. Presence, people, place, and purpose. Now, God's presence was already with Abram. He was walking with him. He was talking to him. And the place thing, well, that looked like it worked out because apparently we're now standing in the land that you're going to give me, God. The purpose and the people, we weren't quite there yet. And so Abram's asking, like, God, when is this going to happen? This sounds great. Uh, when are we going to do this? And God says, oh, no, we're going to do it 400 years from now. But this is a promise from God. It is a steadfast promise from God, even if the timing doesn't work out in the way that we want it. God's promise is still sure. And the way that he told Abram how serious he was, he did this. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. I bet it did, like God's was showing up. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And it says on that day, but think of it like as they were passing. God said to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kezizites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, all the all the ites. God himself passed through these animal pieces. God himself was reciting this covenant and saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be destroyed and torn apart like these animals were. But the amazing part of this story is this. In a, in a traditional covenant signing ceremony, both of the kings pass through the animals. Both of them are taking this vow, and really it's more about the lesser king than the greater king anyway. But both of them walk through, reciting the covenant and saying, if I don't hold this up, may I be destroyed and torn apart like these animals. The amazing thing here, only God walked through the pieces. Only God made this vow. This is what is called a one-way covenant. This is one-way love. God didn't say, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. That's transactional. That's idol worship. I'm going to bring you this offering, and in return, you can bless my harvest this year. That's not how this works. Before Abram could ever do anything for God, God did something for Abram. Before any of us, brothers and sisters, before any of us could ever do anything for God, God did something for us. Romans 5.8 says this. It says that this is how God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God makes this one-way covenant with Abram. 
expects, he, he asks for no reciprocity, no transaction, nothing in return, just says, I'm going to do this for you. And God's covenant is unbreakable because God cannot break his word. God's covenant is unbreakable because he, in effect, swore an oath saying that if he does ever break his word, may he himself be destroyed and cut in two like those animals were. And so as we enter into this, this Advent time, if you think about it, the Abrahamic covenant that we're reading about today is very much what's in view at Advent. It's the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. We await the celebration of, of our king. We await the celebration of the one who is going to be a blessing to all nations. We're celebrating the fulfillment of God's promise made to Abram and then showing up in the incarnation of God the Son in the person, in the baby of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram when one day he would bless all the nations of the world. The promise fulfilled in the birth, death, resurrection, and reign of Christ. And so much like Abram's descendants, as we wait for the promises to be finally and fully fulfilled, waiting is really hard. I am the least patient person I know, and it's embarrassing how impatient I am. I'm not kidding. Waiting is really hard. We have been waiting 2,000 years since the ascension of Christ for him to come back. The children of, Israel, the children of Abraham were waiting about 2,000 years for the promised Messiah to be born. And we have no idea how much longer we have to wait. I mean, we know that to God, a thousand years are like a day, and a day are like a thousand years. He does not measure time the way that we do. So we have no idea when. It could be 20,000 years from now that Jesus comes back. I mean, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, but in Deuteronomy, God says that his faithfulness extends to a thousand generations of those who follow him. Well, if you started Abraham, that was 4,000 years ago. A generation in the smallest possible uh, calculation is 25 years. So we might have 21,000 years left before Jesus comes back. Now, I don't think that any of those numbers are necessarily literal. I think it's to show that God is incredibly lavishly gracious to his, to his people and to their offspring. But we have no idea when Christ is going to come back. And waiting is really hard. And some of us are bad at it. But while we wait, not only while we wait for Christmas, but while we wait for Jesus, we can comfort ourselves in the truth that, that God's word is always sure, that God's promise to us is unbreakable, and that, his over, that the overarching posture toward us is one of grace. Because he didn't make Abram walk down that aisle first and then, and then he himself followed, as would have been the custom. God, God made the covenant. God took the oath. God made the promise. And God will fulfill it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unbreakable, everlasting, one-way covenant of love that you have made with Abraham, with his descendants, with his spiritual descendants, Jews and Gentiles alike, all over the world, those who follow Christ. We thank you 
that this promise cannot be broken. We ask that you would give us patience as we wait for you. We ask that you would give us wisdom as we tell others about you. We ask us that you would give us penitent hearts as we think about why Christ was necessary. And we ask that you would give us joyful voices as we rejoice in what he has done for us and what he will do for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.